Welcome back. Enjoy the rest of the episode. Welcome back to Primordial Dao, Present Dao. This is part two of Teaching Qigong in 2022, a three-legged journey. So having said all of that about Zaran and, um, you know, kind of calling in the ancestors and, and, and being conscious of, of what Qigong really is an invitation to, I guess I want to maybe just shift our, our conversation to the more practical part of the podcast and uh, speak to modern Qigong and contemporary Qigong and, and to sort of talk about how it's going and there's sort of a fork in the roads, you could say, uh, of choices we have. And I guess we're maybe as two-leggeds or people with two feet kind of walking down each of these paths simultaneously, or maybe we're just on one or the other, but I guess I just want to speak to to both a little bit. Um, because like any skill set um, in any tradition, you know, it could be carpentry, it could be calligraphy, and of course it could be Qigong, there are going to be experts who were trained by experts who were trained by experts that were parts of lineages that developed an expertise over generations and maybe even thousands of generations. And uh, they've been passed down. And when I say that, it sounds like they're really solid, like you're passing on a diamond from, you know, you know, parent to child, generation to generation. But because of this Tsaran principle, every generation has refined it and altered that practice, that expertise. You know, obviously we're speaking about Qigong. Uh, so what we get now from those lineages is exactly what it needs to be for today, right? So it might change a little bit this way, a little bit that way. You know, say, for example, now we all live in chairs and we don't squat to poop. So maybe, you know, we want to change our classes a little bit uh, to, to really you know, respond to that need. And th that's sort of pathway number one in, in modern Qigong is, is to find people who have learned those, th those skills from those lineages and have that kind of depth and, and profound resourcefulness and skillfulness and wisdom and, and experience over time. You know, and it's funny the word Gong Fu means experience over time. So, uh, or practice over time. So there, there's that opportunity and, and there's, surprisingly uh, a, a lot of that available to people and then you know given that we have these experts that were trained by experts over generations we also have people that perhaps maybe having really mostly good intentions they don't really have the same uh, depth of experience and how could they possibly have that depth of experience when maybe they learned it off of a video or something and uh, that's not bad. I mean, you can learn quite a lot off of a video, especially if the person teaching on the video knows the limitations and, and the, the little skews and um, things that can kind of be mis misread or, 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 you know, seen kind of differently, you know, when you're, when you're learning on a screen or teaching on a screen. And I guess I've had enough experience with that that I'm getting, I, I feel more adept at compensating for the, the screen thing, especially teaching a lot uh, during the pandemic online. And, um, but that's, that's sort of the, the, the two directions that we're all living in right now, or the, the two streams we're going to learn. And if we decide to really focus on becoming uh, a very skillful Qigong practitioner or teacher is, 
if you, you can find lineage, you know, holding, uh, people who've got decades and decades of, of experience and then go and check out, you know, anyone, anywhere that's got, you know, something interesting that people seem to really appreciate. And if they have, you know, you know, a few months experience, but they're really engaged and they're really passionate and they're really connected to their own practice and their own body. There's always going to be the kind of spontaneous Zaran wizards who, uh, figure something out or, uh, find a really unique way to experience and express their practice, you know, and I'm, I'm, uh, I haven't in, in the last while, but every once in a while I like to go and just sneak into the back of a beginner's class of someone who, you know, is just beginning to teach just to see what they're up to and to follow along and to be a student and, to, you know, enjoy the experience. And, you know, sometimes I, I'm blown away by what, you know, quality and, and meaning and, and, and connection some people have. And then sometimes I can't wait to get out of there because clearly the person is just a giant egoic hairball who can't wait to get more attention. I mean, that can happen from lineage people as, as much as people who've learned something from YouTube. But, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, you know, if you want to really learn, uh, and especially teach Qigong, uh, keep your eyes open for both and keep your heart open to both and, and commit to being a student for as many decades as you can, because you'll never know what's out there until you're out there sniffing away, you know, to, 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 to try it and to taste it and to see if it adds something to your practice. And even if you experience something that you really don't ever want to do again, at least, you know, not, you know, not, uh, what not to do if you're teaching or practicing. <laughs> so it kind of goes the you know, the same way. And if I was to go maybe just a bit farther into that contemporary challenge, uh, and I'm not a yoga teacher. I, I've, I think I've taken one official yoga class in my life and I have nothing against yoga at all. It's very similar to Qigong in, in many ways. But when I speak to really traditional, authentic yoga teachers, they're all quite sad about how modern yoga in the West has turned into this relatively spray and pray six pack abs, make it all about Instagram, you know, youthful beauty instead of deep in, in integrity of, of, of self and of structure and of movement and of health and, and, you know, really making it about a, a whole, a whole practice instead of a, you know, sort of, uh, focus just on, on the, the fitness, the tone and the flexibility because I, I mean, when, when I first started thinking about learning yoga, I bought a couple of books and then I started reading the Upanishads, uh, which is where the original writings came from. And they didn't really talk about yoga the same way a couple of thousand years ago at all. So that, that's, you know, and again, I'm not dissing yoga. I'm just saying that, that for, for Qigong people, we might want to look at what has happened with modern yoga, uh, and there's lots of really amazing, deeply traditional, potent, powerful, and complete systems of yoga out there. You just have to usually go through about five to 10 more superficial teachers to find the really in-depth ones. So my concern naturally with Qigong is, can we make sure that Qigong doesn't turn into some externalized, simplified, you know, thing? And it's already happening. Uh, I'm not going to name names, but there's people who are teaching people to be teachers in three months without ever meeting them or having any kind of really thorough one-on-one -on -one encounter. They just watch the videos and 
here's a certificate and try not to kill anyone. You know, so that that's a concern I have. And uh, can, I, can I share a quick little sort of factual story about modern Qigong in China? Sure. So interestingly, the, the term Qigong actually came into being in about 1947. So when we talk about Qigong being thousands of years old, the practices have been around for thousands of years, but the term Qigong and the focus on Qi manifestation, qi control, qi movement is, is not even 70, you know, five years old yet. And, uh, or I think maybe it's just 75 now. And that's not bad. It's just that we tend to, in modern qigong, focus on, you know, here's your qi ball, put it in your dantian, make it bigger. Now you're, you know, now you have qi wealth and, you know, or qi power and you can maybe electrocute your neighbor with your fingertip just because that would be, you know, funny for some reason. And, uh, there's, there's many, like there's thousands of years of performative Kung Fu and performative Qigong in China, but they all, there's always been the know, the knowledge that these are the, we call feng shui. These are the people that are performing for money. They're putting on a show. It's like a Qigong circus. You know, you don't, you don't go to the circus to, to find Jedis and, you know, high level masters. You go to the circus to find performers and clowns, Right. So in the West, we think that a lot of the, the feng shui clown performance qigong is the authentic stuff instead of a, a show for, you know, a bowl of soup or something. And we take that as like the, the, the real benefit and, and the real meaning of the practice and no, that's not it. And again, the obsession with qi control and qi ownership and qi power um, is pretty new. And, and it, and it's honestly pretty superficial and it's missing like about 90% of, of what's really going on. It's kind of like that iceberg thing, you know, you only see 10% at the top. So, um, yeah, that's, that's me sort of bringing So up. someone such as myself who maybe is new to Qigong or wants to try something, um, is there any like tips that you have for somebody that's going into some of these classes and experiences to distinguish between something that might be a little bit more, you know, like modern and commercialized as opposed to something that's really authentic and traditional? Uh, that goes back to what's the teacher's background. You know, did they, have they studied with experts who learned from experts from thousands of years of practice or, um, you know, and, and if they did, did they study with that person for a long time or did they learn, you know, some, from s some recorded videos for three months with no real direct feedback on their practice? You know, those are pretty extremes, like extreme poles if I was to, you know, make extremes up. But, uh, I, but again, like I had said, Soren, go to every class that you can find, be intuitive, be skeptical, you know, depending on the, the person, because there's, you could meet some, you know, authentic person from China who's 70, who's completely full of crap. And you could meet some 26 year old who's only trained for three years, who's totally opened and, and connected and uh, really has the ability to share with you and guide you into the same thing that they've discovered. Right. So it's possible in, in any number of formats. So I guess my only answer is there's no way to know. The only way to know is to go. 
to go and try the class, to, to feel into what's going on and to see if that person is able to generate in your experience what Qigong is, which is almost always, holy cow, I had no idea. Instead of, yeah, I've moved my arms around, I breathed slow and kind of got bored and yawned a lot, you know, because the, the real practice is going to take you somewhere and it's going to change things and you're going to notice, you know, fairly quickly, right? So um, there's that. And I guess I want to just go back to the, the China history thing for a sec. Because there was a thing that happened in, in China when the communist government in the 80s decided to stop putting Qigong teachers in prison or, you know, just killing them and stuff, um, to allowing Qigong to be taught again and to be celebrating that as a part of Chinese medicine and, you know, how to stay healthy and, and all of that. And this thing happened in uh, China in the 80s called uh, Qigong Re or the Qigong fever. And I'm just going to put out some numbers because these are factual statistical numbers. In the space of two years, 100 million people suddenly needed a Qigong teacher. So not sure if I want to do the math in my head right now, but if your average class is 25 people, where did we suddenly get that many thousands of teachers? A lot of people made up a lot of stuff and learned a few things from books. And, and you know, again, with that feng shui performative circus, part of Qigong being a part of China, part of just the culture, you would be amazed to see, and maybe someday I'll write a book or do a podcast on just all the crazy, funny, wingnut stuff that... Uh, people promoted and people taught and people become massive gurus and cult leaders and all of this really unfortunately not good for people stuff happened because suddenly they, we needed teachers for a hundred million people and well of course con artists and shills and you know people with five minutes of training said well that, that, that could work I'll do that and the same possibility exists in the west because so many people who uh, have enjoyed and benefited from yoga are become becoming curious about Qigong. You know, oh yeah, it's more bendy and floppy and, you know, fluid and circular and, you know, uh, different in the ways that it's different. And everyone's now looking for a Qigong teacher. So of course, hence we have three months training classes where, you know, hopefully they have some fundamentals by the end of that. But um, that's that's the contemporary concern I have is, there's a groundswell of people, especially people over 40 who've already practiced other things, who now want to experience what Qigong has to offer. And that's amazing, and I'm really happy. But there's in no way enough authentically trained experts, trained by experts, you know, from, from lineages, to go around. So that's one of my um, impulses in, you know, creating that Soma Dao Qigong program and the process and the the way it's taught is to make sure that people are learning the principles and they're learning to help modern people with modern problems in, in a very step-by-step -step and, and very clear way so that nobody has to make anything up and it doesn't have to be about magic tricks. It can just be about common sense and the profound benefit that arises when you become an embodied emotionally and consciously present person to your experience and your present and your past and maybe the anxiety you might have about the future and and how to be with that through movement and breath and experience and expression and and release so yeah 
So, I mean, that's, that's my response to it. And, and you know, it's going to turn out to be whatever it's going to turn out to be, but this conversation is, is about, you know, teaching Qigong in 2022 and what might work and about what might go wrong and what's gone wrong already in, in the, in the world around some of these things and maybe how to, you know, be wise about it a bit. Very cool. How about you? What do you, what do you think about, um, what you see as, as a, you know, soon to be Qigong teacher and, uh, a practitioner and a person who's, you know, met elders and, you know, maybe met con artists along the way. And, uh, what's your experience been like? First of all, I'd just like to iterate the fact that I'm just very fortunate that I've had the experience of meeting elders and lineage holders and teachers, um, kind of on the first shot. So I didn't really have to go through a big process of, you know, vetting my teachers and going through and, and maybe even following a tradition down a way that wasn't, I guess tradition's the wrong word, but following a teaching that really didn't resonate fully and then having to step back and then move forward. So just super grateful for that. Otherwise, I just, I want to be, I want to be a tradition teacher. I I would like to, to make sure that we can actually, I want to be a part of taking something authentic and really moving it forward. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't, I don't have a whole, whole lot to say. That's cool. I just wanted to see, see if you had a, I guess any red flags or warnings or funny stories, uh, you know, about, I guess the modern jungle of Qigong and mindfulness and meditation and embodied practice and, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, if you ever go to any of these like holistic markets and stuff like that, well, that's probably a really good place to sharpen up some of your discernment skills. Cause, <laughs> cause some of the things that you see there and some of the people that you see in these markets, it's, uh, it's really quite funny. And uh, you know what? I've definitely felt fallen for some of these healers and readers and things like that. Um, but uh, as I get older, I'm starting to kind of have a little bit better discernment. But that might be a good place to kind of go and explore is just find a find a holistic market and go and talk to people and and see what you see. Yeah, that's definitely true. What's that old saying? Expect nothing and you'll find everything big time so a lot of the times that some of these things have happened to me is like i've just given up it's like okay fine i'm done, I'm done with all of this but then that's when that letting go happens right and then all of a sudden we're flowing again so i guess maybe it just occurs to me that to speak to what uh a traditional teacher uh experience is you know kind of about and what you're most likely to find when you really do you know find someone who's uh, been raised up in the old ways, um, and maybe, uh, somewhat in the new ways as well. Um, but before I get into that, maybe I'll just say that, you know, in, in martial arts and Qigong traditionally in, in China, there's a, a sort of sequence of things that usually happen and they usually happen because you're learning in a family tradition. And one thing that I, I would say to, you know, maintain integrity and honesty is in every one of those family traditions, you're also participating in a family business. 
you know, so some of the, the ways that traditions are set up is to help ensure that those families can, can maintain, um, their family business for generations and generations, you know, so that, so there is that, you know, part of it that, um, might slow things down a bit or might, you know, in reinforce some of these things I'm going to speak to, but in the traditional sense, uh, you're usually going to train with someone for 10 years, uh, before you're invited into the, the secret knowledge. And that's what they call being an inner door student. And that can happen sooner, even like in the first two or three years, if you're particularly, uh, gifted and, you know, a really devoted student and, or the teacher slash family business really, you know, sees you as, as a person that they want, you know, as a representative of, of their lineage and, and what they do. Uh, so it's not like a hard rule about 10 years, but that, that's usually the, the traditional approach is you keep coming for 10 years and maybe we'll, we'll let you in the door, you know, you know, as, as the saying goes to the really enriched, you know, subtle, tricky stuff. And, uh, that doesn't really happen so much in the modern world, but that's where the tradition comes from. And it's usually, uh, about 30 years. Uh, and this is a condition that still happens in, in a lot of traditional lineages that until you've trained and, uh, maybe even started teaching after 10 years, you're not allowed to use the word master. Uh, and the word in Chinese doesn't really mean master, but I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, until like you hit 30 years, like if you haven't trained for 30 years, you can't be a master. Like there's, it's just, you might be gifted, you might be insightful, you might be, you know, some kind of, you know, like Luke Skywalker, you're just meant to be the powerful Jedi or whatever, uh, in that tradition is like, you don't really deserve the respect of your peers until you've put in the time. Right. So that's again, not something that modern North American, you know, Western culture really wants to deal with or anything at all, but it's, it's just to start that conversation off with, usually that's, that's the, the way it unravels is, you know, it, it's, it's meant to take that time to, for us to change, uh, as individual beings and bodies, uh, to transform through the practice, to really be able to demonstrate um, and express or, uh, be, a, uh, an embodied model of, of what happens with that kind of practice. And, um, I remember hitting 30 years some time ago, uh, and I mean 30 years from a lineage point of view, not from learning from when I was quite young. Um, and it was actually around 28, 29 years that I started noticing that I was noticing a whole different dimension of things. And it was maybe 30, 32 years where I was just like, okay, this, this is, this is way, there's way more going on here than, um, I would have been able to figure out the questions to ask, you know, uh, to, to really figure some of these things out. So, um, I'm not suggesting that we all have to wait 30 years to, to teach, but, um, this whole idea of being a master is really a very Western, modern, relatively medieval kind of thing about power. Because the term in Chinese really means more of being a mentor who's responsible for your well-being, not your master. You know, so it's culturally, yeah, there, there's a little bit of hijinks going on there with people who want to be powerful and important in some way. More, more practically, though, uh, a traditional teacher is going to have quite the buffet of things to teach not only standing practices and forms and different kinds of meditation and visualization and, um, 
Nagong or inner work. But there's also all of the hygiene stuff, you know, about uh, how to open your connective tissue properly. And you can't do that rapidly. Um, Self-massage, using acupressure, very unique kinds of meditation that train the mind, not just make the mind observe itself. Um, There's often... uh, um, you can usually see this when, when you're meeting people with that kind of background, that the way they enter into and leave their practice is, is in a way not ceremonial, but a, a bit conscious, if not a bit connected to the sacred. And the idea of working with chi um, is based on the subjective sensual experience, not the powerful now-you-can-do-stuff experience. And in the in Chinese, the word de qi, uh describes a person actually assessing how ripe something is, right? So it's not, I have this, now I can do this. It's more like, what's this like today? What's this like in the spring? What's like this? What's this like now? I've practiced for five years. So it's this quality of subjective assessment and interaction and and sensation and um, exploration of principles. Because no matter what style you do, what moves you do, what postures you, you practice, the way you approach pliability and flexibility, there's underlying principles that are the actual root outcome of the practice. Because you can get that, you can learn that principle and develop it and and really learn to maybe teach it somehow. Um, Because you became skillful with the principle, which is now applicable to every part of your practice in your life, not just a posture you know or a form you know. Right? So the forms are basically like a song. And if you're learning to be a musician and you're going to play the same song over and over again, you're going to learn depths of, of all the different facets that make music music. Right? So unless there's a deep focus on cultivating principles, um, you're not really studying Qigong in depth. You're st- studying like pencil line drawings or stick figures of, of Qigong because you're, you're just learning movement. You know? And um, when I think of a class as, as a teacher, um, balancing kind of the, what I would want people to understand from a modern uh, nervous system and stress physiology point of view, as well as a Chinese medicine point of view, um, one of the things I'm really passionate about is for every class, and I actually do this for every class, no matter what. Before the class, I spend maybe a half an hour meditating on the group, on the part of the process we're in, um, the individuals in the class, the the challenges people are facing or whatever, so that every class can find like a bit of a sweet spot and, uh, you know, a good combination of stillness and movement and uh, stretching and rapid, repetitive movement and silence and... Um, different kinds of focus, uh, different kinds of state shift, um, different kind of flow states that you can, you know, basically kind of like a conductor of an orchestra, you know, create your class so that it's like a symphony and it has, you know, entry points and, and crescendos and then spaces and then endings that make your, your, uh, your, the experience of the class very, uh, tangible and meaningful and specific to, to who you're teaching. And uh, a lot of my teachers had that, that same kind of ethic where, 
you know, you can just stand there and stoically repeat a form and watch people follow you along and say nothing. And sometimes that's a good idea too, to have a silent class where people just follow uh, whatever, they, you know, people have already learned so that they can reinforce the, the experience and, and the, the memorization part. But um, yeah, I guess I'm like, I, I guess I've said 500 times, I'm just really passionate about the the depth of this and, and how much of a symphony it can be if you're really paying attention to who you're teaching and what their needs are in the process that they're they're going through as students. You know, so I think that that's things I just would want to reinforce to people who are thinking of teaching, thinking of even learning Qigong, or who are already teaching, is is to to be humble and and to to give yourself the time to really make sure you're sure that what you're teaching and how you're teaching it has you know that much depth and that much care and that much potential to to really help people. Yeah, I really noticed that with, um, so I'm, I'm actually doing the second uh, or the first phase of the Soma Dao program uh, a second time just to further refine some of the principles. And uh, yeah, the classes are very different. And I, I, w- I kind of thought it was going to be the same thing again, but uh, it's it's actually profoundly different. And even though there are some of the same principles, the way it's taught and the way it's done is, uh, it's exactly what we need, I guess. Well, it's what the people who are studying that group in that group need. So, but in yeah, a, having said that, it's completely different. It's also exactly the same, you know, in the sense that these are the exercises we're learning. These are the principles we're learning, and the way it's paced and communicated is a little different, but it's almost exactly the same in a way too. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I for sure. It's like the foundation of the house is the same, but it's just built differently. Yeah. So, shall we get into? Hmm. Where do you want to go from here, Mike? Well, I think the 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 little menu I had for the conversation today uh, was also to just speak to the relationship. Um, I suppose I can only speak to my relationship, but. Qigong is meant to be a marriage. It's meant to be a long-term, lifelong practice. And it's meant to keep going in sometimes expected, sometimes unexpected directions. And uh, So I'm going to maybe share a, a meditation parallel from Taoism. So in, in Taoist practice, and I talked about this, I think, in the first episode, there's a, a principle in Taoist practice called Xingming Shuang Xu, which is cultivating your your sense of existence and an awareness of consciousness as well as cultivating a sense of embodiment and aliveness and, and you know the the embodied aspect of life in in an equal balance kind of like left foot right foot and when we look at xing and ming they also develop in the and I I'm pretty sure I brought this up in in that episode around what's called xing gong and ming gong which is how to actually practice those things in the long term, in a consistent way. So here's a really interesting, hopefully touching metaphor or imagery about this uh, thing we call xingong. So imagine, if you will, that you're a leaf and that as most leaves, you're growing from a tree branch and you're surrounded by other leaves from the same branch. You're surrounded by other branches and other leaves. And although you're the same thing in a way, you're also uniquely yourself. 
And we live our life in that way, surrounded by people like us and different from us, but still human beings. And we as leaves or as human beings have a certain innate nature. You know, we, we come into being, we spread out, we do our thing with, you know, the sun and chemistry and we, you know, help feed the tree, keep the tree alive. But we're also in our, our, our own little beautiful kind of package as a leaf, our own distinct expression of life or trees or leaves or beings or humans. And at some point, uh, because of weather and age and time and seasons, we're going to fall off of the tree. We're going to get old. It's not going to be about aliveness anymore. It's going to be about endings. And then as leaves, we find ourselves, you know, maybe in an old folks home, feeling like we're just stuck in a corner, like a pile of leaves in the corner of someone's yard, <laughs> you know, and um, that, that's sort of the fear a lot of people have about aging is, you know, I'm old, I'm useless, I'm being shuffled off into some old folks prison and, you know, just go away and shut up. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, a modern reference of, of that. But if we go back to the imagery, you know, let's say as a, tr as a leaf you got old enough and the seasons changed and you fell off of the tree, but instead of falling into a pile of, you know, the soon to die, the wind picked you up and blew you off uh, into a stream that eventually fed into the ocean, and there you are floating as a leaf, maybe yellowish brown, not the same leaf as you were when you first sprouted, not the same energy you know, that you had when you were keeping that tree alive, but you're still that leaf, you're still that memory, and you're still that point of consciousness. You're just older and drier and floating on the ocean. And, you know, you might spend time remembering your leafness, your greenness, your best, you know, days at producing sap and, you know, mojo and sexuality or whatever we might infer leaves might be experiencing on, on a day-to-day -day level. But, uh, you know, there's that way of being, you know, older and, and aware of the, the coming into and the leaving of life. Because that's a part of Xing Kong is you are existence, you are the nature of existence, and you're going to be here and then you're not. So we want to feel what it's like to be a leaf, to be full of, you know, mojo, but also embrace that we are going to be floating on the wind and maybe floating on the ocean. And, you know, in the reverie of the best and the worst of times, but embraced by something because we're floating on the ocean. And as an ocean, you might notice that there's a lot of leaves floating around. There's a lot of memories floating around. There's a lot of painful experiences floating around. And over time, as the ocean, the leaves are going to turn into basically nutrients. And it's going to add to the aliveness within the ocean itself. So when we talk about Xing Gong, it's really about noticing that although you're you and although you're consciousness, you're also everything. And you're also what's behind and around and before everything, you know, in the sense of the ocean. So in traditional Qigong practice, um, which comes from Taoist practice, that's a part of the practice is the meditation, the, the humility, the developing the power, maybe the ability to zap people with your fingertip if that's your thing, <laughs> and why not? But at some point you're also going to get older. 
and your biggest opportunity with cultivation and uh, awareness and meditation and qigong is to extend the capacity for your leaf to embrace its inevitable uh, meeting with the ocean. And that could happen when you're 20 or 30 or 50 or 70 or 90, when you're kind of the actual realization, the spiritual realization that you came from the ocean, you're going to return to the ocean, why not stay in touch with the ocean while you're here? And use that lack of fear, lack of attachment, lack of cringing, lack of separation to stay in tune and in touch with, you know, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s or whatever, so that your practice is embracing the, the bigger ocean of life and your own little leaf life. Because that's what Qigong was about, was to extend life so that our meditation on life and our celebration and bliss and ecstasy of being conscious to life and the ocean, uh, you know, of existence itself, that's why we practice, is to feel and, and to remember and to connect to the vaster aspects of being and to be mindful that if, if you're a bit wise and skillful, you'll age uh, skillfully. And you might live to be a hundred and something or, you know, whatever that may be, so that you can savor both the leaf and the greenness and the yellowness and the floating on the ocean and then the becoming the ocean and then being the compassionate ocean carrying around all of the people that you know that you may leave behind so that our lives are uh, true to a certain truth and our practice reinforces that, remembers that and cultivates a skillful, meaningful response to that. So that, you know, you could say all is one and, you know, in, in, in sort of a modern affirmational sense. But then our practice, you know, may at times be about special powers if it somehow needs to be. But the practice of Qigong has always been, you're a leaf. Stay green until you can stay green. And then be gracious as you fall to the ground. And be gracious when you remember you're the ocean. And be compassionate and generous and grateful as the ocean for everything that comes into being while you exist here. Right? So that's more of the meditation side of, of Qigong, is Xingong. It is, you know, our meditation practice, our consciousness practice, you know, which may or may not require formal meditation, because Qigong, especially if you practice daily, is in a way quite a meditative practice. I know, does that seem a reasonable metaphor. I feel like I just went on a journey. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> that's the idea. And that's actually what so, we call the... So yes, Mike. Sorry? So yes, yes. Okay. I would say yes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's actually the Huan Yuan journey or the, the description of the the tradition, the Taoist tradition that I was raised up in is, is to return to the source so that your life is complete every day because you're, you're staying in the cycle of completion not trying to avoid it or be different or better. So having said that, that's the long-term 70-year, 80-year plan with Qigong. The best way to make that uh, more probable, I suppose, is to spend the first 30 years with a primary focus in your practice on Mingong. And Ming, again, has to do with the, the gambling aspect of vitality in life and 
you know, whether or not you end up with a disease or whether or not you end up wealthy or whether or not you end up limping or whether or not you end up, you know, having the best hormonal balance your entire life and feeling totally like a teenager in your, you know, virility until you're 70 or whatever it may be. The idea is that that's not really up to you in, in the bigger sense, but you can respond to what that is in you right now to make sure that your Ming, your aliveness, your mojo, your connection with, you know, how life moves through itself is very tangible and, you know, you're, you're guiding your journey and your health and your body and your mind and every organ, your circulation and, and all of that towards longevity. So that first 30 years of Qigong is meant to be, believe it or not, like a 30-year boot camp at refining, you know, what's called Yang Sheng Fa, uh, which we should talk about soon, which is kind of like the diet and the lifestyle principles and all of that so that you can be physically fit and healthy and robust and uh, embrace that life is healing. And, you know, if you do get sick or you get injured, the more effective you are at recovering, the, the more, again, robust your vitality is and, and more likely it is you're going to live a, a longer, more, you know, life full of dancing and playing and, you know, really fantastic sex and all of that stuff. Because, you know, Ming Kong, you know, this is the, the practice of, of aliveness and, and enriching your aliveness. So that, that's often that, that first part of the practice is to celebrate our aliveness, to celebrate having a body, to really, you know, make sure there's lots of sap to keep that leaf on the tree as green as we can while we're dancing with all the other leaves that we meet in our lives, you know, and there's the chaos and order of the Tao or, you know, you're, you're not in control of this, but you can have inspiration and intention and, and a, a kind of sense of direction in, in what you're doing. Uh, but in order to accomplish those things, um, accomplish doesn't sound exactly right, but I'll leave that alone. Uh, it's going to take about 30 years, at least from a traditional point of view, to really get to the point where you are the proverbial Jedi, where you really are, uh, able to tap into different aspects of, of your, uh, physiology or energy systems and stuff like that to refine them so that you are in good balance and whatever your proverbial bank account is for longevity, it's going to be really level. You know, I love that expression over the hill because it kind of describes Western life about, you know, accelerate effort, resist, fight the good fight, win the wars, beat the other guy, do better. And then at some point it's all downhill from there. You know, whereas in, in Taoism and Yongsheng Fa, we're like, how about we have a really slow wave that's almost flat, you know, so that there might be kind of an up and, and down to it, but it's as level as we can so that our, our overall vitality and, you know, mojo and good, you know, gumption and all of that are as consistent for as long as possible. And if you have had to really for whatever reason in your life, go up a proverbial hill and fight the good fight, then at least you can do what you can to level out the rest of the, the wave or the curve so that you're, 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 as you get older, it's not over the hill crash. And now you're on 15 medications and in, in a, in a room by yourself watching TV all day, you're leveling it out. So the last, you know, 30 years of your life are going to be as full of, uh, excitement and learning and passion and play as the first 30 were, right? So just, just to speak to that in, in the, I guess, the, the bigger scope of what Qigong is meant to be as a lifelong marriage, 
you know, which a marriage is really about quality time. It's, it's about intimacy. It's about trust. It's about consistency. It's about showing up. It's about listening and paying attention and maybe shifting one way or another to maintain the balance instead of, you know, it's all about me and my urgent, impatient, adolescent reactions to stuff, which is kind of what modern life seems to be, you know, really about, at least if you watch TV, <laughs> um, you know, in the sense of what we are, we're all seeing played out in front of us as what life is about. So, yeah. So that, that sort of enters into the, the that long-term relationship of, around Xing and, and Xinggong and Minggong as, as metaphors for the lifelong marriage relationship and, and the wisdom teachings kind of behind it. Yeah, those two really, I see the way they fit in because one is like the, almost like the philosophical understanding and the overarching thing. And then the other side is like the practical of like, here I am and I have a body and how can I be, I guess it's Yang Sheng Fa, how can I really take care of all of this? And then in turn, that would probably feed into the Xing, which would allow you to have more experiences and open up all of those doorways. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. Cool. So, Mike, should we talk about uh, kind of going and transitioning from the Xingong or yeah, Xingong to the Mingong. Um, if we get a little bit deeper into the body and how we're actually kind of like a three-legged stool or like a three-legged being on yeah. this path. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, uh, that's where we're, we're meant to go. So let's, let's go there. So um, I like the idea of a three-legged stool um, in, in the sense of like, if I was to sit in meditation, there's three different parts to the way I approach my spiritual practice. So I'm not going to get into that right now. I think I've actually talked about it before on the show, but um, I'm speaking more about Qigong as a tradition. There is sort of this idea of the sanli, the three regulations, the three uh, ways we participate in practice. And one is your embodied experience. Um, one is what you can do with breath and interaction, like energy exchanges and, and stuff like that. And the other one is the way we articulate an orient consciousness, which can be very receptive, very expressive, very ceremonial, very sacred, very playful, very silly. Um, but that's mind, you know, mind and consciousness. So we have, you know, an infinite number of ways to show up as consciousness. We have, you know, hundreds of possible ways to show up around breath and energy exchange and the cultivation of, of chi awareness and sensitivity and, and, and practice. And then there's what the body needs, you know, depending on the time of day, the time of the year, how old you are, whether or not you just recently got over an infection or you broke your leg or whatever it is. Those are those three things that we really want to kind of harmonize all of the time is what's my embodied experience today? What I'm, What is my connection to, to breath and energy and um, those kind of interactions. And then where am I sort of maybe stuck in consciousness and, or what can I do to be less stuck in, in certain patterns of consciousness? And if we can bring those three things together in, in some, I don't know, really great stir fry or stew recipe, <laughs> uh, fairly spontaneously and, and fairly consciously for each time we practice or each class we teach, if we're teaching, then we're, we're going to, 
bring into being the the most likely benefit of harmony harmony in, in one sense and peace in one sense but the abundance of vitality because that that's sort of been the the understanding for thousands of years if if you can be aware and and articulate your embodied experience be aware and and articulate the breath energy part of practice and and the consciousness part of practice and like I guess I'm going back to the symphony metaphor, bring them all into a synergy of experience. You know, part of it's the intention, but part of it's the benefit of actually manifesting that intention and then getting the benefit from your practice in that way. And the reason I I want to describe that that way is that the opposite of a healthy marriage is a boring marriage where it's take everything for granted, be like a porcupine and poke the other person every time they want to bother you with something you don't want to deal with. And, you know, that kind of, I don't know, again, sitcom comedy about dysfunctional marriages, right? And Qigong, like anything, can turn into that if you just, okay, i got to do this form, i got to do this breathing, i gotta, I got to stretch, touch my tongue. And, and you know, there's no, there's no ming in that. There's no xing in that. It's, it's just, you know, you're... You're obeying the schedule of your practice without uh, living it in, 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 in a passionate and playful way. So, and I mean, if I ever have days like that, I, I get through my practice and be like, wow, man, I must be really tired or low or I need better sleep or I'm, you know, something's going on because, you know, wow, that was a really bad marriage day. <laughs> you know, and they, they will still happen, but if we can use them as, as kind of like traffic signs for you know, or dashboard lights for, uh, wow, I've got to bring more aliveness into my practice because I'm kind of asleep at the wheel here, you know, and, and I'm not in my practice. I'm just doing my practice. And, um, I mean, I, I've had a couple of short term teachers, you know, that I really, I had met and really hoped that I was going to learn something specific from, but for whatever reason, their life had, you know, sucked out all the, the green from their leaf and they were just going through the motions and because they were kind of famous, they, they kind of thought they were getting away with it, but it was just like, mm, yeah, dude, you're clinically depressed. I'm not going to study with you right now. Maybe I'll come back <laughs> in a couple of years and see if you're okay. But, you know, uh, you know, you know, things like that. But, um, so that's the three-legged stool in, in, in the sort of, uh, fundamental things that we really want to make sure we're paying attention to in our practice and especially if we're teaching so we can be responsive to the people we're teaching based on their body language and how they're moving and you know where their facial expressions are so that uh every class is ming kong it's it's an aliveness response to the aliveness in the room and i don't actually do this but i'm just playing this out based on the tree metaphor if i'm in front of a room full of people teaching a class and they're all leaves, my first thing is, okay, let's consciously enter the practice as I'm scanning the group, looking at the yellow leaves, the brown leaves, the drowning leaves, and the really green, shiny leaves. And then I'm like, okay, this is going to be how I'm going to focus on the practice based on the, the mingong in the room, like how the aliveness is in the room, right? And then we don't get to be automatic, which, you know, too bad, so sad, and you have to be present in the world, oh well. <laughs> Uh, especially as a teacher, but the, then we, 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 it becomes tangible to the chi experience, right? We're not just doing and we're not just telling and we're not just being told. We're interacting with what's really going on. And I've, I have to say with the pandemic, um, 
that's, I'm really grateful for having teachers who have made me really pay attention to those things because the last two years of, of teaching different groups of people, mostly online actually, uh, has made me really get a, a different awareness of that kind of awareness because, you know, you're online, you can or can't always see everybody and, um, you know, it, it takes just a little bit of, uh, attention and, and imagination to, create the best possible class in that environment because we're, we've all been going through quite a, you know, an interesting season as leaves, you know, it's challenged us all in different ways and it's been kind of hard. Yeah. The virtual classes are definitely different. I've, uh, I've taught some friends and in the virtual it's, uh, you don't get the feedback like you would when the people are right in front of you. Yeah. And so there's a whole nother, like, the space I feel is still there. It's just like not in front of you. Yeah. So, I mean, like, no, yeah, we're just speaking the same thing. There is the, there's that challenge, but if we're aware of the challenge and we can lure out the information or the responsiveness that we need to, you know, be, be more, uh, in that mingling relationship with, you know, teaching and, and learning and practicing, at least where we're not going asleep to it. Definitely. <laughs> Sleeping at the wheel is definitely not good in your practice. Um, not, not usually. Not if you're cultivating something anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you are allowed to take your hands off the wheel and coast and feel all excited and butterflies in your stomach sometimes, though. <laughs> Cruise control. Whee! <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what happens. <laughs> hey, Mike, so if you were... So just to kind of wrap all this up, so if we were teaching... A class in 2022 uh how would we go about approaching something like this uh, i guess the first thing is tsaran it's a contemporary situation with those people as well as you know them or as well as you don't um if you're you know in front of a qigong class on average most of the people in the room are going to be over 50. you're teaching people who for the most part live in chairs looking at screens so the some part of the practice might want to to respond to that need um and, and, and you don't have to even bring that up with people but you just like you know talking about how we move our pelvis how we open our hips how we you know bring tone into the core and uh you know it may be a surprise to some people but there's a whole system of qigong that you do on the floor like you know like yoga on a mat uh, that's not any, well, there's some similarities to, to yoga, but it's, it's also quite uniquely its own thing. Um, so depending on the, the people in the room, my, my first thing is where's everybody at? Where's everybody's posture at? How, how much damage control am I focusing on? How safe do I have to be with people based on their spines and their, their necks and their shoulder blades? Cause you, you can learn to see a, a lot from, from just watching people walk into a class. So I like to show up early and, you know, set up things. And usually I have some notes in front of me if it's a progressive class so that I can remind myself to remind myself in the middle of the class. Cause usually if I get really into my own practice, I space out a bit. So I like to have a couple of reminders in front of me to make sure the class is going where I wanted it to go. Uh, but it's always watching people enter the room and seeing, you know, the, the embodied experience that, um, needs to be met and carefully held and maybe shifted. And then there's faces. 
people's faces tell you a lot about their volume of resentment and adversarial experience or shame or, you know, depression or other things like that. So again, you know, you look at all of those things and you're like, okay, today I'm going to be a bit more of a clown or today I'm going to be a little bit more of uh, the gentle speaking poetic Yoda, you know, or whatever uh, that you might want to do. And in that way, it, it's a living responsive uh, communion and, and interaction with people. And uh, the one thing I would say I'm most commonly reminding people that I'm teaching to become teachers like yourself is be really careful with overdoing anything in the sense of showing off. You know, like if you're getting in any kind of stretch or any kind of move that requires a lot of core tone and strength, most of the people in the room are over 50 and they've just spent most of their life in a chair looking at a screen and that might not be good for them because they just, they haven't spent the last year or number of years restoring those capacities. So don't overstretch or don't even try and stretch. Just focus on being pliable and, and, and loose and open uh, and rooted and, and kind of loose like kelp in the ocean. We call it like fang song, this uh, uh, experience of, of being... Uh, the opposite of stiff, right? The opposite of stressed. And then there's ways to, because if this is kind of a game in Qigong, sometimes we imitate negative experiences so that we can sequentially find our way to the positive experience. So imitate being really tense, like someone's going to throw a snowball at your head. I guess that's a Canadian thing. <laughs> and, you know, how does your body respond? And can we imitate that and then uh, unravel that instinctual kind of tension that we might have? So, so that, you know, again, given the bodies in the room, given the faces in the room, the spirits in the room, um, we can playfully come up with things that help people remember how to unravel their tension. Remember how to open their diaphragm and their belly and their, their heart and, and to just be in the now, you know, and sometimes that, that takes a certain amount of stand up comedy or stand up, uh, um, guidance, I guess, in the spiritual sense to, to encourage people and to inspire people. And sometimes that means, you know, you actually want to practice a certain aspect of eloquence, not in the fake sense of pretending to be eloquent, but actually going, huh, you know, and I, there's some authors I really like because they speak on purpose with florid, um, expressive, almost poetic speech sometimes. And that's actually an indigenous thing. Uh, to be an orator is, is to be of, of skillful use in the middle of your life. You know, what, what is, there's a traditional teaching uh, to be an orator means to defy the fear and hatred in the ears of those listening so that that fear and hatred diminishes so all of the people can celebrate our connection and love and joy of life together. You know, and that, that would be like the, the job description of, you know, your average indigenous midlife person 10,000 years ago. Go and be eloquent and defeat the fear and hatred in the hearts of those who hear your words. Right. So sometimes, sorry, I went off on that a little bit, but, uh, you know, that that's a part of teaching sometimes is, is to be conscious that people are paying attention to you in vulnerable and sometimes very powerful states. So being the clown, being wise, being somewhere a bit of both might really be skills to develop. 
And again, this is assuming you're going to be married to your practice and you're going to do the decades and at some point become that kind of teacher. You know, we can't all start there, but that could be the aspiration is to, you know, be an elder at some point. Might take 30 years, usually minimum 30 years, but, you know, uh, that that's been the tradition around the world forever. You know, and I think there's an, there's another aspect of uh, practice, and I, I know this is one thing you and I've talked about, which is pretty yummy for for both of us. We call ting jin, which is a, a skillful, if not potent, power of being able to feel into and listen into, and and be really subjectively aware of your sensations, and and listen to them. I mean, that's kind of what ting jin means is to listen, although. It's, it's got many other uh, definitions in the English version of listening. And um, there's a, a quote I like to repeat. Most of our lives are felt, especially the meaningful parts. So one of our jobs as Qigong teachers is to remind people about how to feel into life, not to control life. And if you're feeling anxious and, and afraid and overwhelmed, to move into that instead of try and stuff it down and replace it with some magical thinking to make it go away. Because that's not going to go away. It's just going to get mad at you. <laughs> right? So, so that's, that's a really big part of practice. And especially given the pandemic, you know, most of us have been experiencing a, a kind of oppression, a kind of lack of knowing about where the future is. And that's like a really bad place to be stuck. And uh, I guess I think of like horses in, in a corral trying to kind of force their way out of the corral and that adversarial, impatient, aggressive thing that a lot of people are feeling, the resentment, the you know, everyone's pointing fingers at somebody else for doing it wrong and, you know, all of that. That's something that is like a qi wound. And there's many subtle qi wounds in Chinese medicine and, and Taoian practice and uh, as teachers and as practitioners, are we actually caring for those wounds and maybe even speaking to them, you know, in, in the right moment in a class about, you know, let's all let that horse out of the corral. Let's all move around and, you know, have a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, an emotionally expressive fit <laughs> uh, of some kind to really let the wiggles out or let the the, the energy stagnation move a bit. Um because, you know, we're about, it's about responding to needs, right? And when people can have those experiences, first is there's a, a natural kind of acceptance. I accept that I'm feeling this resentful about whatever. And when I feel into that resentment, there's actually 900 different things going on in there now that I've accepted my, you know, sense of resentment. And if I can move with it, relax it, release it, uh, nourish it, you know, jump up and down and freak out about it, you know, yell into a pillow if that happens to be the thing that helps you. We build up a kind of momentum and confidence in our ability to actually be, uh, to have the steering wheel of our central nervous system, to having the steering wheel of the butterflies in your stomach. And that's not about control. It's about navigating skillfully what's actually coming into consciousness as you relax, uh, you know, the stuffing down part of consciousness and then things come up. And because with the, especially the, the Soma Dao approach to Qigong, having, you know, some connection with trauma release, both the ancient Taoian approach and some modern understandings, it's inevitable 
for people practicing Qigong in this way, that you're learning to relax all those control mechanisms and things are going to come up. I mean, do you, do you have any, have you had much experience with that or? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> he says with a leading question. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the, one of the more potent ones was, uh, uh, I believe we were doing a teaching on, uh, on like, a one of the animals, the panther. And as soon as you started doing the panther, I just, I had to turn it off because I was raging. Like I, I was literally mad and uh, <laughs> I couldn't understand why, but there was just like it, the animal triggered something and, and I literally had to shut it off. I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that that's one of the more funny ones. Cause like looking back is just hilarious, but there's been uh yeah, there's, I guess that lid's been on pretty tight. And yeah. after relaxing and learning to open that, yeah, there's been, yeah. <laughs> yeah and to, to say this, I mean, keeping it together is, is a need. You know, you can't just lose it in the middle of a work day or uh, maybe in front of your kids or whatever. So keeping it together is, is a skill. But unraveling keeping it together is a necessary response to that skill or else you only have one half of the skill, <laughs> right? So that, that's a big part of Qigong is, okay, good, good job keeping it together, but now we're going to go back to the ocean and, you know, things got to move, things got to get real. <clears throat> and, yeah, uh, and, a, and a bit more on a serious level, um, I guess there's been a lot of trauma from my childhood and, and like I was born premature and, you know, there's some things that happened kind of earlier in my life and after going through the first year of the Soma Dao process, um, I really started to really understand why I had certain mannerisms and certain ways of being, which was primarily dissociated. Uh, I was dissociated for most of my life. So the inability to remember things or, or you know, kind of like why things didn't work out in my life, it, it all kind of started to make sense. And then getting to a place where I was starting to actually release and let go and then finding stillness and finding presence and flow and joy. Uh, that was huge. And even prior to us uh, going through this process together, I like I worked with elders and I went to healers and I did, I did lots of work cause I, I knew there was something going on, but uh the relaxation and the embodied awareness and, and the bringing the mind back into the body has been very potent for me. A question that I kind of had on that subject, it, is Qigong like one of the like main or if not the only way of doing this or, or like I guess Qigong yoga or would it be anything embodied awareness or are there other practices that you know of that would kind of go through in this direction because I haven't been able to find them prior to Qigong. I think the, the closest thing would be to see a somatic therapist. So that's part talk therapy, part embodied practice, often part breath work, uh, depending on the kind of training the somatic therapist has. But um, I'm actually going to be teaching somatic therapy uh, probably in the next year or two because I've over time developed a kind of approach to clinicians and talk therapy as well. It's all based on Tao Yin but, and uh, all the neuroscience of, of trauma that, you know, nerds like me like to learn about. Um, but 
that that's I think one of the most important things that's coming into modern culture is I think there's two or three tracks you can uh, learn around somatic therapy now that you can even probably study online. So for people who want to become like an actual therapist in a room, you know, talking to people and helping them become, you know, develop tension to, to learn to feel into the felt sense of life and uh, to allow what consciousness has stuffed into things or dissociated from or a thousand other things to keep bringing us back into those you know, conscious and unconscious choice points in our in our life and in our past, so we can recapitulate them. We can learn from them. We can accept them. We can heal the parts that we can. We can accept the parts that we can. We can find maybe more discernment around how we judge the people around us who may have harmed us in some way. And that doesn't mean like carte blanche, forgive everybody no matter what, because life is way more complicated than anything. You know, simple. <laughs> um, but to, to develop, you know that kind of a committed relationship, but that's like going to see a therapist for like, you know, a few months or something to have them guide you into your body. But if you already have a practice and and there are some somatic, you know, therapeutic yoga systems out there now, um, that, that are very powerful in the same way, but you go to see that person often one-on-one or in small groups and you do a very gentle yoga practice while you're being guided into, uh, places where memories are often held and ways of breathing that regulate the body and reawakening certain capacities of the body that are often uh, latent or shut off because we just, you know, had had to shut them off to survive certain moments in our life. And, and tell, I mean, and that's like part of your nervous system's ability to do that. We can completely shut down and, and leave our body and not remember entire periods of time and as I mentioned earlier in, in the show, you know, your, your body is very wise in, in not bringing that memory back until you have the emotional, um, visceral, existential, instinctual resources to handle remembering that experience, you know. And that's where somatic therapy is really powerful because if the therapist really knows what they're doing, they're going to spend half the time helping you get confident and resourceful and and really connected to something and trusting the interaction as as uh again resourceful and potent enough and safe enough for the scary things to be in the room without being overwhelmed and and those those kind of skills are are irreplaceable and that's i mean i I think of elders that i know and i've met joe and he's uh what a what a gift to human beings to to work with someone like that and i'm almost coming to tears just thinking of uh meeting him and and, and like you said I've, I've mostly known him actually as an acupuncture patient but because i spent a lot of time talking to my patients i i've come to revere that man as as a as a holy man and uh people like that in the, in the world are rare and having a chance to work with someone that grown up if i will in the sense of what elders might really be uh is just such a blessing um and there there are surprisingly you know maybe surprising or not many uh people like that in the world you just have to often slow down enough to notice that they're sitting very still watching you and inviting <laughs> you to have a cup of tea <laughs> uh, you know and then that, that kind of brings me to maybe where to kind of close the conversation a little bit is 
as I had said, you know, we are many things, you know, in the sense of spirit and, you know, ancestors and memories and experiences and we're bodies. And most of our existence is felt. And Qigong, really, when you learn enough moves and forms and basics and stuff like that, the real art begins with de qi, the ability to assess the quality of, of qi uh, in many ways with many systems, organs, meridians, uh, aspects of creation itself, uh, weather, seasons, north star, like there's a lot of universal influences that have meaning. And the meaning itself is its own potency. But, and I'm, I'm aware that I'm going to say something that's going to sound maybe a bit judgy, but it's meant to be more of a funny thing. The, the number of Qigong classes that I, I've seen where people you know, cultivate the, what's called la na, the moving of your hands to feel a qi ball or a field between your hands and, and that experience, which is pretty interesting to have when you suddenly start feeling like there's something literally going on here between my hands that is really going on. It's not just, you know, I'm not just making this happen because I didn't expect it to feel like this. And now it feels like that. And now this is happening. And uh, you can usually tell it's really happening because you had no idea what's going to happen next. And what happens next is always a surprise, you know, in some way, right? So what often happens when people start having that experience is they make it a thing. And uh, I can't get into this right now, but in Chinese, qi is not really a noun. It's not really a thing. It's a description of how certain aspects of relationship um, are experienced. So this goes back to this de qi. Like if you're assessing qualities of qi sensation, qi awareness, qi experience in your practice, de qi has sort of two sides to it is, well, feel into it more, feel into things like colors and qualities and sounds and you know, maybe colors of light or whatever the mind might be able to connect to as, as tangible. Um, there's also many things that you can't find words for, but as you develop that awareness and you keep seeking an awareness, a receptivity and honoring of the, the fact you're touching into the universe and the universe is touching you back, <laughs> you know, in, in that way. And you're experiencing something that's always been there. So you're not making it happen. You're actually getting out of the way enough for you to feel what's always happening. You have this choice, try and make it a thing and put it somewhere so you can have more, which is sort of a Western reflex. Or you can shift into the relationship. What's right relationship with cultivating a direct interaction with universal energies and systems and, and fields and, you know, if you want to think about magnets and electricity and uh, neutron stars or what, like there's so many ways that the modern Western mind can, you know, hold this experience. But the question I have, you know, which kind of goes into the, the next step and the next step of actually cultivating Qigong is what's the relationship and what's that relationship feel like now that you're having this touching the, the dewdrop or the tear of reality that's between your hands as an expression of energy that might actually have an intelligent nudge for you if you can stay with the memory that everything that matters is felt. And if you can honor that in a meaningful, heartbreaking, open, meaningful way, then you start to 
begin your practice because your practice isn't to make a chi ball. Chi ball is a doorknob, <laughs> you know, so you can open a door to the real depth of practice and depth of relationships and cultivation of innate talent and uh, capacities and awareness and uh, to cultivate actual spiritual growth. And, you know, spiritual growth to most people's surprise is based on bringing the unconscious into consciousness so if you're doing something that you made up in your head and you're rubbing the world with you, the thing you made up in your head, you're actually painting over the world instead of peeling back the layers of the world to find the unconscious, right? And that, that's where modern Western Qigong often gets kind of hijacked by the, the 1947 hijacking of Qigong in China, which is focus on the Qi ball, do stuff with the Qi ball, now you're powerful because you have a Qi ball, run with the Qi ball, you know, not maybe you're supposed to be a shaman or a Jedi because you've felt the universe because you got out of the way for five seconds. Instead of going, okay, this is the beginning of something that's going to take the rest of my life to uh, integrate and to, to be in reunion and recapitulation and, and to actually do the healing without any sense of control. I mean, there's aspects of Qigong for sure where you cultivate a Qi ball or a Qi field and you use it to clear meridians and clear organs and clear dantians and, and form tools for Nagong and Nadan or uh, inner cultivation and alchemy and things like that. But those things only really continue to progress and to show you the unseeable and the undescribable because you're you're assessing the quality and you're honoring the wow <laughs> i'm actually having a conversation with the universe without words and if i stay with this and keep going into this who knows how many dimensions and layers of this there are so so that's that's the the, the beginning of practice that's not the that's not the outcome of practice cuz so, so much of this stuff is already innate you know, your meridians are already doing what they need to do. They might need to tune up once in a while if things go sideways, but most of what's going on in the universal sense, in, at least in the indigenous or Taoist sense, is already present and can never be explained and put into words. But you can experience it. You just can't explain it. That's the, the first line of the Tao Te Ching. Tao Ke Tao Fei Zhang Tao. If you can explain the Tao, it's not the Tao, dude, sorry. <laughs> That's maybe a modern interpretation, but... Or uh, the most common kind of ripoff from indigenous culture in North America is from the Lakota people. And I, I got to spend some time with um, uh, an elder who came from that teaching tradition. And their word for what in English people call the great spirit is wakantanka, which translated from that language is beyond all possible comprehension. There's no word in there that means great spirit, not, not even a little bit. It just means beyond all possible comprehension. Well, that which is beyond all possible comprehension. <laughs> <clears throat> So I, I always like to share that thing because it's like, yeah, the first line of the Tao Te Ching affirms the first teaching you get from indigenous people, which is, if you can explain it, that's really not what you're doing. So FYI, <laughs> which makes my job really hard to sometimes on a Taoist podcast to talk about Taoist stuff because it's like, well, I can put this into English in a certain way, but I'm not really touching it beyond 
you know, a shadow of a glimpse of a glimmer. You know, because most of what we experience that matters is felt. It's not said. <laughs> well, words just don't make sense after that. Maybe we should just we should just end it at that. Let's just leave like five hours of white noise for people to be like. <sighs> <laughs> so, Mike, thank you so much for all that. That was uh, there's definitely some really good gems and some key takeaways there, and uh, so that was episode seven of the Primordial Dow Present Dow podcast with Dr. Michael Smith and. Myself, Ravi Kaler. Episode 8 is actually going to be a mystery surprise. Uh, we don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but it's going to be good. So tune in and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening and uh, I hope you received some benefit from this conversation. Thank you for exploring and enjoying Primordial Dao, Present Dao. We look forward to sharing more in the next episode.